Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Recreational and medical cannabis are legal in Connecticut. Now, local lawmakers are studying the medical benefits of psilocybin mushrooms, or so-called magic mushrooms. Coming up, we hear about the science behind shrooms and talk to a local mushroom forager about growing interest around psychedelics. First, one of the lawmakers that sponsored the bill to create the task force to study psilocybin joins our conversation. On Zoom with us, Representative Josh Elliott of Hamden. He's a member of several legislative committees, including Public Health. You can also join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Representative Josh Elliott, welcome to our show. Hey, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So uh, what got you interested in putting this task force together? You were one uh, of several lawmakers that sponsored the bill. So I was a major proponent of the cannabis legalization bill. And you can view that through the lens of either public health or criminal justice reform and equity. And I think that through that uh, public health lens is where I am driving this conversation for the legalization or decriminalization or even just medical use of psilocybin. And it's usually easier to make the argument of if there is a a true medical use for a drug to go that route, because people are uh, way less suspicious of what you're attempting to do. And um, I'll leave with that. So coming up, we're going to hear from a researcher about uh, what science uh, knows about uh, the effects of psilocybin. But tell us more about this task force. So there are several, how many members? And when we think about studying the, the medical benefits, you know, what have you learned so far? So this is just over 15 members on this working group. And the working group is specifically tasked with trying to create a structure if and when the time comes that Connecticut moves forward on creating a a system of using psilocybin for medical uses. And it's a combination of lawmakers. There's about seven or eight lawmakers, uh, both Republican and Democrat from the House and from the Senate. And then there's a a number of doctors, uh, mostly from Yale, that are clinicians and psychiatrists, psychologists. And lastly, you have some folk from the agencies and you have folk from the Department of Public Health, uh, the Department of Health and Mental Addiction Services, and the Department of Consumer Protection. And this bill went from zero to 60 this year. Uh, We passed it earlier in this session and didn't really have a ton of attention. And it was a bill that I introduced. I talked with the chairs of the Public Health Committee, uh, Representative Steinberg and Senator Abrams, 
And very quickly, um, uh, a friend and, and previous colleague of mine, Jesse McLaughlin, who is representative, a uh, Republican representative, uh, contacted me, said he was really interested in working on this with me. And then Representatives Horn, who is the chair of public safety, and Representative Linehan, who is the chair of children's, uh, talked to me and said that they wanted to be a part of it. So within just about a week of introducing this bill, um, it got way more attention internally than I even expected. So I'm thinking about the, the road to the legalization of cannabis in our state. And, you know, it took a while, like many uh, issues, before something is legalized. When we think about uh, psilocybin, uh, you know, how the federal government still considers this an illicit drug. And, and so do you expect pushback or, you know, how are you thinking about the, this conversation, um, you know, moving forward? There is pushback. I think that we're at a particularly interesting moment right now, given that we uh, have at times felt that we are on the tail end of COVID, and, and now we recognize that tail end may be not as within striking distance as we felt. But coming out of this or going through this, uh, we are dealing with way more issues of depression, anxiety, um, uh, unresolved trauma, and that is specifically what psilocybin seeks to target. And we know that there's federal money coming in, coming into NYU, Johns Hopkins, and even more importantly, I think Yale, that is looking at what this drug can do. And we are seeing studies that are in the phase one and phase two trials. Um, and even if you look at MDMA, which is another psychoactive drug, we have uh, phase three trials that are happening with that drug as well. So um, the, the medical profession is taking this very seriously. We are, of course, uh, through our laws, lagging behind where the medical profession is at. I will say that I think doctors are not quite there to say, yes, definitely, this is absolutely good. But I will say that there is so much interest and there are so many pointers in that direction that we feel good about continuing to press on this topic. And of course, as you mentioned, the federal laws and regulations um, continue to be a big barrier in terms of access for, for people that are looking to um, take part in this drug and, to, and take part in this maybe for themselves uh, without that supervision. But, um, you know, that's, that's something that we just have to tackle with. And I do believe that states have a role to play in kicking the ball forward uh, to ensure that, that we have this experimentation to, uh, to see what works for people. Meanwhile, while Connecticut has this task force, again, to study the uh, impact of uh, psilocybin, again, with us, Representative Josh Elliott, who's on the Public Health Committee, he represents Hamden, uh, one of the lawmakers to sponsor this bill to create this task force. I'm looking at, you know, what other uh, states and, and cities, uh, how they're thinking about uh, psilocybin, uh, Oregon uh, being the first state to, I think, legalize it for clinical use for adults only. Um, other uh, uh, cities actually are looking at decriminalization. And so can you talk about that? Like what the steps would be uh, when we think about uh, this particular substance and, and contrast that to, you know, again, the path uh, that, that Connecticut took uh, in legalizing cannabis? I was always really hesitant to talk about um, cannabis through the medical lens. Uh, for me, it was always more of an issue of, of equity and an overall perspective on the way that the war on drugs has failed us. Looking at psilocybin, though, to me, yes, you can look at it through that lens. I mean, certainly we should not be criminalizing addiction and, and criminalizing trauma. Uh, in many ways, we're also criminalizing poverty. And so that is uh, the way that I, I tackle this issue. I, I will say that 
my perspective writ large um, tends to lead me toward a system of full decriminalization. The reason being that we should be looking at uh, mediating risk and minimizing risk. And the best way to do that is to ensure that people aren't ODing, to ensure that people aren't buying off the black market, ensuring that people have the mental health services and housing services that they need. Because generally speaking, when we talk about addiction, uh, it comes from deep-seated trauma, not always, but very, very often. And so if we are using our prisons and our jails as a warehouse for people that have mental health issues, uh, we aren't uh, putting our money in the place where it is best served, and that is simply to be helping people. So this task force, again, is very specifically for medicinal use, but I will say that uh, for myself as an individual legislator, uh, viewing drug laws very broadly, I believe that we should be moving more towards the model that Oregon is uh, Oregon is experimenting with. I would say a lot of my reasoning and my thought process uh, comes from an author. His name is uh, Gabor Mate. He's uh, from Canada. And he wrote a book uh, from the perspective of somebody that ran a clinic for decades, uh, basically talking about addiction without necessarily uh, looking at it through the drug use lens and just looking at addiction generally. And the thing is we have hyper-focused on uh, addiction through the lens of drugs. And we have determined that that is um, in many ways bad or worse than other kinds of addiction. And if you take that stigma out of it, you can actually see that it's really important that we, that we treat these, uh, these issues of depression, anxiety, uh, and, and PTSD uh, with humaneness by, by giving people the resources that they need. And, and so that's why I think overall going towards a decrim model is the way to go. But to get there, you have to also um, recognize that psilocybin has some serious medical upsides. So getting back to the task force, that report, the recommendations are due at the first of the year, Representative Elliott? They are due at the first of the year. So the, the working group is, is coming together this month to try to get it done before the holidays as quickly as they can. And when you're talking about decriminalization, looking to the upcoming session, is this something that uh, you would be um, introducing uh, moving forward? I will introduce it. I will say that I don't think that the legislature is there yet. I don't even think the legislature is there necessarily on creating a model for medical use quite yet. Uh, like I said, I, I think that we are sort of in this spot just before uh, doctors are ready to stand uh, on the roofs of, uh, of houses and buildings and, and yelling to the legislature that we absolutely must go forward on this. I, I think that there is uh, just enough trepidation to really ensure that all these longitudinal studies come out the way that we expect them to. So we might just be in that really odd spot where we might have to just do a little bit more research. I'm hoping not, and I'm hoping to talk to my colleagues and, and create a structure uh, with the knowledge that things are going in the right direction, really to be determined. I do know that of the people that I've talked to, the people that are championing this bill, we are all very excited. And so if it doesn't happen next year, it's not like this is an issue that will go away. We will just keep on uh, hacking at it until we make sure that it becomes law. You're hearing State Representative Josh Elliott from Hamden here on Where We Live. Thank you for telling us about uh, some of the work behind the scenes. This is how the sausage is made, so to speak, right? How law before uh, things become laws, uh, the research that goes into particular issues. We'll be looking forward to that report, Representative Elliott. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we hear about the science behind magic mushrooms and talk to a local forager about 
growing interest around psychedelics. Do you have a question? You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is well, where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As we just talked about, Oregon is the first state to legalize psychedelic mushrooms, permitting supervised adult use in a clinical setting, and several U.S. cities have decriminalized shrooms. Connecticut policymakers are exploring the health or medical benefits of psilocybin or magic mushrooms, the report due to the legislature next month. Now, there's growing interest around psychedelics, and we wanted to learn more about the research into magic mushrooms. Coming up, we'll hear about some of those clinical trials and what they've shown related to the treatment of mental health from depression to addiction. Joining us first on the phone is Bill Yule, who's an amateur mycologist and a retired teacher. Bill, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm doing well. Our listeners can join if they have a question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Bill, we just talked about the state task force looking into the health benefits of psilocybin. Uh, there seems to be a reemergence of interest in psychedelics. Uh, you were quoted in the Connecticut Post saying, there's an entire subculture of people growing psilocybin in their basements. Tell us about that. So that's very true, Lucy. And I would say also that the interest in psychedelics right now is equal to the peak of the 1960s in terms of subcultural and uh, sort of uh, non-authority-based interest or medical interest. So, yeah, people are growing psilocybin everywhere, all over the world, not just in America and uh in their basements and college kids in their dorm rooms and old retired people uh, because it's fairly easy and because people have suddenly become interested again in the many uh, different kinds of potential benefits of using these substances. I like to call them plant medicines, even though they're not plants, uh, but using them wisely, using them for specific purposes. So that's happening. Uh, I could tell you uh, how easy it is to grow them 
or what I know about the subculture. I do travel around and I talk about mushrooms all over the country. Uh, and there is a growing movement right now to have mushroom festivals that sort of uh, promote the idea of decriminalization. So I mentioned anyway. Yeah, you, I mentioned you're an amateur mycologist, so you're a fun guy, right? So tell us about your interest and when you were talking about how this is easy to do and, and the popularity of it, I wanted to hear more. Okay, so I've been studying mushrooms about 30 years. Uh, I studied botany as an undergraduate, and I never really gave up my interest in uh, the fungi part of botany. And so I joined uh, several amateur mycology clubs. I belonged to four local clubs, and uh, two in Connecticut, and one in Massachusetts, and one in New York, and one in National Club. And what we do is we have lectures, we trade information, we have little forays every week, every Sunday we meet as a group and go out in the woods and collect mushrooms and identify them and talk about them and trade t-shirts based on the mushroom theme and all the things that go along with being passionate about a hobby. And then there's another level which is largely web-based that has to do with a more serious study of documenting the biodiversity of fungi in North America because unlike plants and animals, the fungi uh, are not really well documented on a national basis. Uh, So I'm involved in all those things kind of simultaneously so I'm what people call a mushroom expert in the in the sense that uh, I have a lot of uh, background and experience in identifying wild mushrooms safely for people uh, to forage, to eat without poisoning themselves. And also I have a, a, a big interest in the biology and the ecology of fungi as uh, increment as parts of forest health, really. And just so, recently, a couple of years ago, I started growing mushrooms uh, because in the wintertime, I couldn't go out and forage wild mushrooms. And so now I'm in a whole new phase of learning about uh, growing mushrooms at home, which is really a lot of fun. So we're talking specifically about psilocybin mushrooms here uh, today. Uh, when we think about you were talking about the ease of growing them, but if someone were to go out into the, to the local woods, would they find psilocybin there, or is this something that's um, more found, uh, you know, uh, naturally in in different climate? Hey, I guess it all depends on how motivated you are. There are psilocybin-containing mushrooms in Connecticut. They are not particularly common. Uh, or I should say they're not quite as common as they are in other parts of the country. Uh, But we have at least four or five uh, species of wild fungi in Connecticut that contain psilocybin, uh, but it's much easier to grow them uh, in your kitchen or your basement than it is to go out and find the wild ones. The most common psilocybin-containing mushroom in Connecticut is what we call Big Laughing Jim. Uh, that's a gymnopolis is the uh, 
is the genus, uh, and it's called Big Laughing Jim because it has a reputation for producing several hours of hilarious laughter and people that eat it. I see. Uh, so that's really <laughs> that's really a little bit about what's out there in the wild. If you really want to look for psilocybin mushrooms, you can find them in landscaped areas with wood chips. Uh, and I would say also that because psilocybin mushrooms are basically wood decomposers, they are spreading to public places all over the world. Wherever you see a landscaped area with wood chips, there is a potential for psilocybin mushrooms to, to pop up there, even though they may never have been around here, Connecticut, before. Uh, these mushrooms are all of a sudden popping up all over the world. And that has to do with a little bit of intentionality on the part of the people who use the mushroom. Uh, it's sort of like the Johnny Appleseed point of view uh, for psilocybin mushrooms, if that makes sense. <laughs> You're hearing Bill Yule here on Where We Live. He's an am amateur mycologist, a retired teacher. As we talk about psilocybin uh, mushrooms or magic mushrooms, we heard earlier the state wrapping up work on a task force studying the medical benefits of shrooms. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Before I, I take a call, I wanted to bring into the conversation Dr. Alex Kwan, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine, to learn more about the science behind psilocybin. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Uh, thanks for having me. So we were listening to Bill talk about uh, psilocybin mushrooms and where they can be found, that they can be easily grown. But tell us more about the, the active ingredient and you know how it's cultivated. Yeah, so in the lab, uh, we study psilocybin, which is the active ingredient uh, of the so-called magic mushroom. Uh, we use a form that's chemically synthesized um, and we're very interested in what it does to the brain. Um, so in the lab, we, we, we study mice and um, uh, basically use optical imaging to see uh, what happens to mice after they have received psilocybin. You know, there, when we think about uh, shrooms or magic mushrooms, uh, you know, some people um, don't have a good experience when uh, they take this. And so I'm curious about your interest and in, in how uh, researchers are, are thinking about ways to, to treat uh, mental health uh, illnesses, Alex. Yeah, so I think, yeah, psilocybin, as already mentioned um, previously, it's interesting because it has different uh, kinds of behavioral effects. Uh, on one hand, it has a kind of a short-acting, uh, acute effect of um, changing the way you can see the world, changing the way you sense the different stimulus, um, and it may, maybe even causes some hallucination. Uh, but then on the other hand, uh, after that, on the order of days and week, it can also have, seems to have some beneficial actions, uh, particularly against certain mental illnesses like depression or addiction. Um, so yeah, there has been a, a number of clinical trials now um, to try to yeah, use psilocybin and see whether it can be a effective treatment against various mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, there's also push in basic science, again, also try to understand what this compound do to the brain. Uh, much of the research is done back in the 60s and 70s. And then since then, uh, the compound has been scheduled. It's been quite difficult to uh, look at it in research. So there's also a resurgence in just trying to get some basic understanding on what this compound does.
And you're talking about, you know, because this is still considered a illicit drug federally, that really uh, tamps down the ability to get federal funding to study psilocybin, Alex? Yeah, there has been a gap of about, uh, I would say, around 30 years uh, where, yes, there has been uh, very limited resources uh, from the federal funding. In the U.S., that would be the NIH to try to run specifically clinical trials on these compounds. Uh, a lot of the early work has been dependent on philanthropy from um, thing, places like uh, Hefner uh, Foundation or Uzona Institute. Uh, but although recently it's been changing. So there's just been, a, a, I think a couple of months ago, Johns Hopkins received a grant from NIH to study the action of psilocybin for uh, addiction. So it's changing. I want to hear more about the research uh, that you've done with mice on psilocybin, Alex, uh, but I want to take a quick call. Aida is calling in from Mansfield. Aida, what's your question or comment? Um, yeah, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm just really excited about psilocybin getting out there in the in the medical community um, because uh, microdosing is kind of right now just like um, a self-medicating. You know, we, we have to kind of figure out our own routine and... Um, kind of uh, basically uh, be able to figure out um, our own treatment. So I think it's really exciting to, to be able to see um, how psilocybin can be used regularly for um, anxiety, for example. Thank you, Aida, for your question or your comment. Uh, Alex, she mentioned microdosing. So describe that and, and why um, you know some people try it that way. Is that to avoid these trips that that may not be um, you know very helpful to some? Yeah. So normally uh, in clinical trial uh, for testing as a treatment, uh, people use the a dose that would also elicit the hallucinogenic effect. Uh, so microdosing referred to the practice of uh, using a sub-hallucinogenic dose, so dose that below that, so you don't have the acute behavior effects, um, but perhaps it can still uh, lead to some beneficial action. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I think the evidence is still out. There, uh, there hasn't been a very properly designed clinical trial on um, the effectiveness of microdosing, but I think it's an intriguing idea. So you'd mentioned uh, the clinical trials involving mice, and we think about um, some mental health illnesses like depression. So what um, what has been shown in mice that maybe could prove uh, fruitful down the road, Alex, when we think about uh, human use? Yeah, so in mice, uh, when we give the mouse a dose of psilocybin, uh, we found that it leads to an increase in the number of neuronal connection in a part of the brain called the frontal cortex. Uh, so that part of the brain tend to also be affected uh, in depression in humans. Uh, so one of the interesting thing is that uh, what does an increased neuronal connection mean? We also see uh, that kind of growth uh, when we were young, so when, uh, when we're developing the brain or uh, when we're learning new skill. So what the su study suggests is that the brain may become more plastic uh, after uh, receiving a, a psychedelic a psilocybin, uh, at least in mice. So um, that is one possibility for how even uh, in adult, we may be able to be more receptive to new experience, maybe more malleable, uh, leading to changes that, again, could be beneficial uh, to fight uh, mental illnesses. And what do we know about how long-lasting uh, that, that reaction can be, Alex? You mentioned uh, maybe creating these neural connections that um, are lost uh, when people are experiencing depression. And so in mice, we have tracked the uh, changes in neural connection up to about a month. Uh, so for mice, that's a, quite a long time. They have a lifetime of about two years. Uh, 
So this mirror some of the finding and the clinical trial where yeah, one of the probably most striking thing about psilocybin in these pilot trials is that how long lasting it is. After typically one or two doses, uh, people still see some uh, effectiveness against uh, disorders like depression uh, for up to weeks, if not months. You're hearing again Dr. Alex Kwan here on Where We Live, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine. As we talk about the science behind psilocybin, again, a Connecticut uh, State Task Force is looking into medical benefits of the psychedelic. If you have questions or a comment, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so in the field of psychiatry, is this an exciting time, Alex, when you think about the research uh, being done? Because when I think back to uh, when we're talking about depression, has there been a lot of, uh, you know, advancement in the types of, of treatments for depression over the last few decades? Yes, indeed, it's tremendously exciting because uh, serocybin represent a type of uh, medicine that uh, uses a different mechanism of action, meaning that uh, conventional antidepressant are, for example, Prozac, they're called, a class called SSRI, and then more recently, we have some uh, newer medication, for example, like the ketamine. But these uh, rely on acting on different types of receptors and uh, signaling within the brain, whereas psychedelics like psilocybin, uh, they act on a particular type of receptor called a serotonin receptor. So they work in different ways, which is quite important because a lot of the uh, patients do not respond to traditionally SSRI. About one third of the people are not uh, sensitive to it. Uh, so there remain a lot of need in terms of uh, finding new medicine that could uh, work for people. And I think psilocybin has that promise, although obviously larger clinical trials, these phase three clinical trials are still needed to show that efficacy, uh, but it's really promising. And I think a lot of people in psychiatry are excited about it. When you mention SSRI, so when we think about Prozac, some uh, patients aren't responding to that, and so they're finding ways of, of looking at psilocybin as a potential uh, treatment uh, through these clinical trials, Alex? That's correct, yeah. And I should mention one very interesting aspect of uh, psilocybin in trial is that when psilocybin is used, it's unlike other medicine where you give the medicine and that's it. Uh, in the case of psilocybin, it's always given in a supportive setting, right? So uh, before the administration, the clinician work with you, and then during the administration itself, you also have one or two uh, clinicians that's, that's supporting you, that's guiding you uh, through that administration because you do have those acute behavior effects. Uh, so it's, 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 it's a, a form of assisted psychotherapy in a way, um, the combination of both the medicine as well as the uh, the personal setting that seems to make it work. That's really distinguishes it from uh, other kinds of uh, drugs that's on the market. Right. So tell us more about that, about the trial. So, um, you know, how extensive this is when a patient comes in and how they're evaluated. Yeah. So, uh, well, so I think uh, there's a couple of uh, trials right now at Yale. Mm -hmm. So they're uh, led by um, Dr. Santa Cora and Kalmendi. Um, and, uh, Typically, it's, it's quite involved, yeah. So first of all, there's a lot of screening. Uh, so psilocybin as a psychedelic is uh, definitely not for everybody, okay? So th there are some interaction that is known. For example, people with prior history or genetic background that's susceptible to schizophrenia uh, or people with cardiac issue, uh, you know, those are, um, are higher risk in terms of uh, for receiving psychedelics. Uh, but then when, once they, once they uh, through the screening, uh, they have to have a, pre-treatment session where they have to interact with their clinician, where the clinician will tell them about the intention. 
and also tell them about the um, the the regimen. So the the patient is very informed about the whole process. And then again, there's that whole supportive uh, segment through the actual administration and then also follow up. Um, so it's a very again uh, extensive process that's quite different than uh, other kinds of medicine currently available for for let's say depression. Uh, earlier, we had talked about um, hallucinations on psilocybin and how they're not helpful for um, everyone. So I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, what are the dangers uh, to psilocybin? Yeah, so as I mentioned, uh, there are some conditions that would interact, uh, again, the predisposition to psychosis or uh, cardiac uh, effects. Those have to do with the, the way these drugs act through the serotonin receptors. Um and then again, also, I think, uh, you know, during the administration process, the brain potentially is more plastic. So uh, people are in a more uh, suggestive state. So again, I think having that regulated clinical supporting setting is, is quite important for the successful um, delivery of these, uh, of these uh, medicine. Mm. And we, when we talk about that trip that um, psilocybin takes people on, you know, in the future, it still remains to be seen if um, people or patients can take psilocybin and get the same benefits to the brain without that trip, Alex? Yeah, that's a big push right now in the commercial industry uh, in terms of drug discovery. There's a, the idea of whether that trip itself is important for the subsequent therapeutic effect. I think on one side, uh, people who are more... Um, thinking of biologically, where they think that maybe we can identify some new compound that's like psilocybin, but not psilocybin, that may be able to induce a beneficial action, but without a trip. On the other hand, there is a group of people um, who also think that the trip is integral to the effect of psilocybin, that that um, acute subjective experience that some people think are quite meaningful, uh, and they remember for a long time that that itself is also could be uh, what is leading to the beneficial changes. I think the jury is still out. We really don't have, at least chemically, a uh, compound that is fully uh, non-hallucinogenic that we know right now, but there's just a lot of uh, uh, development there. It goes back to the uh, administration itself, as, I'm, as I described, it's fairly elaborate, right? A lot of support is needed. So uh, the commercial interest comes from the fact that if you can have a medicine uh, of kind of psychedelic that does not provide a trip, then uh, perhaps the cost of administering it would be lower. Again, you're hearing Alex Kwan here on Where We Live. Uh, he's an associate professor of psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine as we talk about clinical trials and what uh, science uh, behind psilocybin uh, mushrooms. Uh, when we uh, look back and, and see that, you know, there are particular states like Oregon, uh, there's some cities that are looking to decriminalize, you know, how that impacts, if at all, the work uh, that Yale and others are doing uh, to advance the science behind this uh, substance, Alex? Uh, in that way, I, I really I agree with what uh, earlier Representative Josh Elliott said, and that uh, I think more is needed uh, to in terms of knowing these uh, compounds before I think we make some decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, I think um, there's still just much we don't know about these drugs, and I think uh, there are potentially uh, tremendous benefits that's uh, really game-changing for the field of psychiatry, but there are also certain risks, as I pointed out. So I think uh, more knowledge is really needed to, to make these decisions. We were talking specifically about depression. What about uh, people who suffer from addiction, Alex? What do we know about how psilocybin can help them? There has also been some uh, very exciting preliminary evidence uh, 
uh, again, mostly out of Johns Hopkins, but also at Yale, there's been trial uh, looking at using psilocybin for treating uh, alcohol use disorder, um, as well as uh, uh, tobacco use uh, disorder. Um, and again, I think early uh, result has been promising, um, and I think more bigger trials are, are on way. I should also mention there are also other kinds of psychedelics right, beyond psilocybin. Uh, another one that has been uh, really heavily tested now for addiction is uh, ibogaine, uh, which people also think to be uh, potentially to be quite useful. So there's just, again, yeah, a lot of promises, a lot of work being done. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show uh, to talk about the clinical trials. Uh, Alex Kwan again from Yale School of Medicine. Also, thanks to Bill Yule, an amateur mycologist, uh, telling us about this resurgence and interest in growing psychedelics like psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, this is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Next up, speaking of seeing colors, the Courier and Ives of the Graphs portraying American life were pretty popular in the 19th century. We find out why from the curator of a current exhibition at the Florence Griswold Museum called Revisiting America. That's after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Coming up tomorrow, COVID cases are on the rise again in Connecticut, along with the first confirmed case of the Omicron variant locally. Questions over restrictions are being revisited. Tomorrow, Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont joins us to talk about the latest on vaccination and booster efforts, also many other topics, and we'll take your calls too. What questions do you have for Governor Lamont? We hope you join us tomorrow. Now, long before there were gifts and memes circulating on the Internet, Americans in the 19th century bought and collected Courier and Ives prints. The images by fine artists were mass produced. The prints portrayed scenes of American life and Courier and Ives lived up to its self-appointed title of, quote, the Grand Central Depot for cheap and popular prints. The lithographs are the focus of an exhibit at the Florence Griswold Museum in Old Lyme. Joining us now on Zoom is Amy Kurtz Lansing, curator at the Florence Griswold Museum. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks. Um, thanks so much. So many of us have heard about Courier Knives, but tell us briefly about Nathaniel Courier. Well, Nathaniel Courier was really a pioneer of image making in the United States. He was a lithographer who um, was born and trained in Boston. He became an apprentice uh, and he really started out, uh, you know, lithography was a printing technique developed in the late uh, 18th century. It was really pretty new. Um, and so he started out using it, um, as people did at that time, um, to reproduce forms and letterheads, you know, anything now that we would use a PDF for. That, that's what lithographs were used for back then. And um, he recognized, uh, after moving to New York, um, the potential of lithographs for disseminating images, especially of newsworthy events. Um, his place of business was located near um, the newspaper, the New York Tribune um, in lower Manhattan. And um, he really got his start um, by uh, by creating extras, image extras that would illustrate events, especially the news of disasters told about in the newspaper. And people would buy those, you know, that extra, extra, they would actually buy these supplement. They wanted to own images of some of these um, events, like the burning of the of ships in a harbor or other fires and disasters, the same kinds of things that we look at CNN 
or Today or Twitter. Um, and he quickly was able to kind of shift his business to sort of feed Americans' hunger for imagery. Um, he founded his firm in 1834, um, which is just five years before photography comes on the scene. And so he sort of, um, you know, really well positioned himself to become the purveyor of, of cheap and popular images to the American people. Can you describe some of uh, the the images that are part of this exhibit and the fact that many of these artists were actually unidentified? Yep, yep. The, many of these artists worked under, they, they published their work under his name, although we try to sing um, kind of um, pull out some of the important exceptions to that, including a woman artist, um, Frances Palmer. And they were creating images that went across the gamut. Um, they were very proud of the uh, way that their images were a mirror in some senses, but also an idealization, uh, the, uh, creating an ideal of American life that Americans wanted to see. So they created images of a country that was sort of bursting forth onto the global scene through um, its pursuit of maritime trade, pictures of ships, um, cross-Atlantic ships, um, steamships, the railroad. Uh, they created images of American cities, which were booming and bustling. Um, they created images of domestic life and sports and leisure, which were phenomenon in the 19th century that were really becoming available to people as industrialization uh, and the ability to purchase rather than make goods um, gave people a different relationship to their homes and gave them leisure time because they weren't making all of those things homespun. And they created images of American history, current events um, at, like the Civil War and of America's settlement of the West. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they also created furnishings for the home, images that a woman in particular could use to um, you know, to provide decoration in her home over now with over which now she was seen as the kind of, you know, the chief curator in a way. Um, and so they published sort of, you know, pictures of every sort of subject like I've described, but they also published mottos, things that said words like home sweet home, if you think about the kinds of um, signs that many of us, you know, add to our homes today with mottos and expressions that, you know, meant to articulate, you know, our sense mm -hmm. of being at home and surrounded by a certain atmosphere, that's actually a, a kind of concept that um, Courier and Ives really helped pioneer through their sales of prints. Looking back, when you talk about history like the Civil War, some of the way the images portrayed uh, these events, problematic when we look back today, Amy? Yes. Well, so it's interesting. Courier Knives was a very northern firm. They're based in New York and they were really they were pro-union. And so during the Civil War, you know, they really published images that were endorsing the idea of, you know, of the North as being, you know, superior to the South um, in all ways. Um, and, you know, that that gave people images of, you know, union military might and victories like Gettysburg. Um, they did publish some caricatures, you know, they're kind of equal opportunity uh, to taking and taking of pot shots at different political figures. But the images that you're um, referencing as controversial are ones that relate to um, the way that they they began processing some of those topics about north south relations after the Civil War. Um, I mentioned that they were very pro-union, but when the Civil War ended and Reconstruction, you know, was being navigated as a process of kind of reincorporating the South uh, into um, back into American life, 
Courier Knives looked out and saw a business opportunity where they wanted to create images that would reach a Southern audience. And so though they had been um, on the Union side, they began, began to create images, for example, of plantation life in the South uh, that feature stereotypes of African-Americans enjoying a kind of happy existence, uh, you know, on plantations, playing music. And, you know, the... the, the um, uh, and and living intact in families, you know, images that did not acknowledge, you know, the horrible conditions under which uh, they had lived under slavery and under which many of them still lived in the um, Reconstruction era. And so, but Courier Knives, you know, wanted to make prints that would sell. And so those prints sold well to the American South and to audiences that brought into that kind of myth-making. Um, and they persisted and were reproduced by the prints in a way we still live with a lot of those stereotypical images today because a firm like Courier Knives you know played an important role in perpetuating them throughout American culture. You're hearing Amy Kurtz Lansing here on Where We Live, curator at the Florence Griswold Museum in Old Lyme. We're learning about this exhibit, uh, Revisiting America, that focuses on the lithographs of Courier and Ives. You can join us if you have a question. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We mentioned some of the artists uh, that this exhibit is um, making sure to highlight, including a, a woman artist, but there is also a Connecticut artist, uh, Mr. Dury. Can you talk about that? Oh, yes. One of, um, if, if people have heard of Courier Knives, and actually, even if they, uh, and so if they've heard of Courier Knives, probably what pops into their mind is a George Henry Dury image reproduced by the company. Um, or if you've seen um, Christmas cards that feature, you know, a snowy scene of New England with people in a sleigh, that comes into your mind because of Dury. Um, Dury was an artist whose specialty was painting winter scenes. He was from New Haven, and actually he was the son of a lithographer so he was, even though he was a painter himself, he was um, really well poised to recognize the power of lithography to extend the reach and audience for his work. And a number of his pieces were reproduced by Courier and Ives in his lifetime. And even posthumously, they reproduced a number more. So Dury um, was somebody who would go around and uh, get different, you know, sketch the landscape and then kind of put together all of, you know, the most ideal looking New England house, the most picturesque farm and kind of group all of those elements into one picture. So he created a kind of pastiche of ideal New England scenes where everything is kind of covered with a cozy blanket of snow. And it really celebrates this idea of, you know, the American homestead of people sort of living together intact as families, you know, working, you know, for themselves on their own farm, self-supporting this idea of the kind of Thomas Jefferson's sort of yeoman ideal of the American farmer. Um, and his images really celebrated that and became among the most popular um, sellers uh, by Courier and Ives. And um, they, when Courier and Ives, uh, they, they kind of fell off in popularity and the firm went out of business in 1907, but the firm is revived uh, in the 1920s. And those images are really embraced as, you know, really kind of um, just radiating, you know, this positive feeling about early American life. And they are widely, widely reproduced as on, um, you know, on, on Christmas cards, on trays, cookie trays, on coffee cans, uh, um, you know, uh, many, many commercial goods um, on stamps. Um, and in the traveler's calendar, um, there's a, a, 
a, a section of the exhibition that deals with the um, legacy of Courier and Ives. And the Travelers Insurance Company based in Hartford um, noticed the popular interest in Courier and Ives prints, especially Dury's images uh, in the 1930s and started making their annual promotional calendar uh, a kind of feature, every, uh, the whole thing focused on Courier and Ives prints. And every January for decades, they put one of Dury's images in there. And you can still buy those calendars today. Well, it sounds like a really interesting exhibit. Uh, again, this reached popularity in, in the 19th century. And I'm just wondering you know, how many of these images uh, remain and, you know, the, the time that it took to put this exhibit together. We just have a couple of minutes, Amy. Yes, well, untold numbers remain. They produce 7,000 <laughs> designs and um, probably millions of copies, you know, of their images are out there. Some were a little bit more bespoke and high-end and hand-detailed by the uh, by the artists. Uh, and um, those are rare, but then there are smaller-sized ones, you know, that are just all over. People are often finding them in their attics. And this exhibition was organized, in fact, by the Jocelyn Art Museum out in Omaha, Nebraska. They own one of the largest collections of Courier and Ives prints that was put together by a collector in the 20th century after the popularity of the prints was uh, was revived. But we really saw as a museum in Connecticut, you know, how well known these prints are, the kind of connection that people feel um, to these works of art through their own life and early exposure to these, especially people, uh, you know, who are, um, you know, grew up in the mid 20th century. And so we wanted to have a chance to give people a chance to um, look at these images uh, that they find familiar and have affection for, but also to understand them in new ways. And so um, we grew this exhibition a little bit to play up artists like Dury and the legacy of Courier and Ives. Um, but it, but fortunately, it came together with the aid of, of this other museum, the Jocelyn. Well, it sounds like a great one to visit. Listeners can check out Revisiting America, the Prince of Courier and Ives, I believe, until January 23rd. Curator Amy Kurtz-Lansing was with us. Thank you so much, Amy. We appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you. And that's the curator at the Florence Griswold Museum in Old Lyme. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Again, tomorrow, Governor Ned Lamont joins us. We hope you join us as well with your questions.